you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and get to John chapter 12. would love for you to join there with me because this is God's Word, not mine. And uh, hopefully that's what you hear today. I want to just kind of point back to a few things. I'm grateful for the potluck that we had last Sunday. I'm still having to keep a belt notch uh, looser. Uh, from all that we had. It was a really good time. Thanks for all those who were helping in uh, getting that happening. I also want to just comment. I think uh, how many uh, women here yesterday had a good time at the retreat this past weekend? Just say yes. All right. Awesome. I I hear it was a blast. I'm grateful for you guys participating in it. Now, um, those of you, uh, uh, some of you might not know this. Uh, When I uh, study for a sermon, I don't actually use my Bible. I, I print out the text on a piece of paper, and I mark everything up. And I, uh, I don't, not like Thomas Jefferson, I, don't, I actually value the Word of God. Um, but I, like you can see all the different connections. And this is just the passage from today, all the different notes, all the different thoughts. And so uh, you might wonder why sometimes sermons are going over 50 minutes. It's because there's a ton to say. But I apologize for that. And I also want to let you know that uh, today, like every, every word that, we're gonna be, that we've read, that we've heard today, matters. So that's why I have such a, a desire to, to speak about everything that it says. But today, I, I just uh, clearly, there's, there's just way too much to talk through. And so we're gonna, I'm going to try my best to kind of summarize all of it um, into a helpful way for you uh, to take home and uh, take into your heart. So with that, uh, how many of you, just by show of hands, I can't get that in there. How many of you, by show of hands, just show me, how many of you know the joy of your purpose, having purpose in life? How many of you know the joy because you know your purpose, right? Some of you do. Some of you did not raise your hand because some of you might be asking the question that I think a lot of people ask these days. Why on earth are you here? Why were you made? Why do you exist A lot of people don't know why. A lot of people have no clue why they exist. And they're still, after many years, still trying to find something worth living for, something worth giving themselves to. For those of you who do know your purpose and you know know the joy that comes from knowing your purpose in life, right? You know the the, the hardship you can face sometimes when you lose the focus of your purpose, when sometimes you, you stray off and you wander off into different things. But that's the thing that's unique about Christianity, That's one of the things that I believe is unique about Christianity. We are not only given a new or or a restored identity whenever we're born again, but we're also restored back to our purpose, to why we're here. We find our purpose when we find Jesus. We find why we exist when we find him. Why? Because, well, that was inherent to who Jesus was. Jesus, do you think he had questions about why he existed? No. You think he wondered what his purpose was? No, no. Actually, today in our text, we find out one of his chief purposes for why he was sent. In fact, that word sent is one that I have not talked about yet, but you've read it uh, about 40 or 50 times already in the Gospel of John. The, the, the word sent is, a, is a, a very key word in the Gospel of John that we've been studying through. Uh, and if you have had a pregnant wife with cravings, you know the meaning of the word sent. Because you know that late night, she's in bed, she, uh, she got the big belly, and she's like, I need pickles and Oreos. That's her craving. And you get sent to the grocery store. You know that you are on a mission. You've been sent with a purpose, a task. That's the word sent. 
That's what it means. And the word itself appears over 60 times in this gospel alone. 23 of those are in reference to Jesus being sent from the Father. Which obviously implies that the Father sent him with a task or a purpose or a mission. What is that purpose? Well, the answer is in our text today. Now, who remembers just, you can say it in three words, uh, what text did we study last week? What was the event? Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, exactly. And we talked about at that moment, Jesus was going to be, he was being welcomed in as king, but everybody around them and their mom had an agenda for Jesus. Come, come clear up the problem that we all see. But then we talked last week about how very clearly Jesus has his own agenda because he's king, he's not just servant. He is king as well. He, he has his own agenda. And this text starts to show us very specifically what he's got on his agenda, what he's coming to do, why he came. If you started off the reading, it starts with some Greeks who are here to see Jesus. They want to come and see Jesus. And they start by asking Philip, right? Why Philip? Uh, well, the text doesn't say. Philip is a Greek name, so it might be that. But this is, this is a big deal. You want to know why? Because Philip hears from the Greeks, hey, we want to see Jesus. And he's like, um, hey, Andrew, these Greeks want to see Jesus. What should we do? Let's go see Jesus. And they go talk to Jesus. And then they finally tell him, he's like, hey, these Greeks want to see Jesus. You got to keep in mind, in this context, ethnocentrism is on a high level right now. Uh, some people, uh, like today, that's kind of talked about as racism. I, I, I would say here, it's like Jewish culture, uh, the Jews understood themselves to be God's people. They, they, were, they were elevated above the rest of the nations because they were God's chosen ones. But that was not God's ever, it was never God's heart for them to have that sort of mentality so they are, these Jews are overwhelmed with this idea that Greeks would want to come and see Jesus and whether or not Jesus was clearly going to show that he was for Gentiles as well. Because in Greek or Jewish thought, there was Jew and then everyone else classified as Gentile. That was it. And so, so these Greeks come and they, see Je- they want to see Jesus. And Philip's like, Andrew, should we sell him? Andrew, well, I don't know, what we go? let's go talk to Jesus. Maybe he'll let him. So... They tell Jesus, and that triggers Jesus to make a really big announcement. He announces something very specifically, and it's the first, I'll say it's the first four words of verse 23 of his words. It says this, the hour has come. Can you say the hour has come? Sorry, I didn't didn't know we were answering phones in church. (laughs) Woo! All right. So the hour has come, right? Apparently the phone call too. So I don't usually get phased like this. The question you got to ask, though, is why, why does Greeks wanting to see Jesus trigger Jesus to say, all right, it's clear, the hour is here, the, the time has come. Why does a Greek 
wanting to see Jesus trigger that. And here's why. I think here's why. Because it's going to rapidly expose what Jesus' true agenda is, and the people are not going to like it. The whole crowd won't like it. The Greeks coming to see Jesus is going to, is going to reveal Jesus' purpose, why he was sent. And we're going to find out in the text very specific things that we will come to know that the Jews did not like that Jesus was going to do. First, we find out that this new king that we just welcomed in, he wants to welcome in the Gentiles too. Into our nation? Into our heritage? No way. He's also going to, he's not going to be liberating Israel. He's going to be doing something else with a different ruler? Oh man, and, and what about this, what about this, like he's not going to be staying very long? We thought this guy was going to stay forever. So we're finding out that that this is going to trigger a lot of people starting to find out he's not the king that they thought they were welcoming in. But he's the king that we needed. And in verse 27, in in a roundabout way, he, he, he says, this is the hour for which he came. This is why he came, for this specific hour. In other words, he was born for this hour. He was born for this moment. And uh, I mean, I, I, this might be my unsanctified mind, but I start hearing a ding, 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 ding. If you had one shot and one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or would you let it slip? Okay, did anybody not get that? All right. Just, it just felt like it. So the question we've got to ask is then, what is this moment? What is this hour that we're here for? Sorry. <laughs> How about everybody take your phones out and just silence them real quick? <laughs> I don't mean to, sorry. <laughs> so we got to ask ourselves, what is this hour? Jesus says he's come for this specific hour or came to this hour for a very specific reason. And I'm going to give you four descriptions of what's happening in this moment. Four things that Jesus says in this text that are happening in this hour, okay? So here's the first one that we see. It's clearly first that the hour is the hour the Son is glorified. Can you read that with me? One, two, three. It's the hour the Son is glorified. So, I mean, clearly in verse 23, look at what it says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be magnified, to be exalted in one sense. That's what that word means. Now, he goes on to explain what he means by that glorification in the very next verse. Look at verse 24. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So clearly, this idea of glorification is connected with this something dying and going into the ground so that it produces fruit. But Jesus later on explains more of what he means by being glorified. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. He says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth. So, so in one sense, that word means exalted. But we already know 
that it's been used before in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus or when, when that whole exchange goes out that the Son of Man has to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness when Moses was there. You remember that story that we talked about? Moses, the, there was a plague of snakes coming through the, uh, the camp and, and people were getting uh, bitten and, and, and dying from it and all they had to do was if they, want, if they were bitten and they need to be healed, they would look at the snake that had been lifted up on the pole, the bronze snake, the serpent, and they would see it and they would be healed. And so in the same way, Jesus is here saying that he will be lifted up from the earth. That's a glorification term, but it's also a death term. Look at verse 33. John makes the connection for us. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. And as you know, how did he die? By what? crucifixion. He was nailed to a cross, lifted up on a pole. Now, Jesus is clearly making this connection that he's about to die. He's talked about it in a few different ways, and the crowd there starts to see that that's what he means. Because look at what they comment. Look at verse 34. The crowd replied to him, we've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So here we're seeing one part of Jesus' agenda that they don't like. They thought the Messiah was going to live forever. That the Messiah was going to rule over them forever. Be their king forever. He will, but not in the way they think. Did you notice, did you notice the connection if they thought the Messiah was going to remain forever. But what did Jesus say would happen if the seed or the grain of wheat remains, by, or remains forever? It remains by itself. In other words, if Jesus came to be a Messiah, he would be the only one of its kind. But here in verse 24, he says, if that grain of wheat falls into the ground it die, and it does not die, sorry, if it doesn't fall to the ground and die, it remains by itself. But if it goes into the ground and if it dies, it's going to produce a great harvest, much fruit. Guys, the scripture talks about Jesus being the firstborn of many. You are the fruit of his death. If he did not die, we would not be here. He did die, so he did not reign, remain alone. He is the firstborn of many of us. He's the prototype. Now, one of the things that Jews often, uh, when they go into the Old Testament, they neglect is Isaiah chapters 52 through 53. Luke already read them, and I praise God that that was part of, I mean, that, that's obviously the Lord being faithful. But it's talking about the, the the suffering servant, clearly this one sent from God in Isaiah 52 is going to be exalted. He's the suffering servant who's stricken, who's crucified. In Isaiah 53, what's so surprising is how this suffering servant's going to be exalted, how he's going to be lifted up. He will be exalted by having no majesty, no beauty. He's going to be despised and rejected. He's going to be smitten and stricken by God. He's going to be pierced and crushed for sins. As the Lord lays on this suffering servant our guilt 
by his wounds we are healed. And this is how Jesus, our Messiah, will be lifted up, will be exalted. His death is his glory. That's why we just sang, man of sorrows. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your blood poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. His death is his glory. Now, one of the things that you will find in the Gospel of John is that John nowhere includes Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't include it like the synoptics do. In verse 27 and 28, we get something close to that agony. Look at verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Do you realize, I mean, I mean that, that would be legitimate, right? Like, there's... there's He's about to go through torture, and he's about to be nailed to a cross. Father, save me from this hour. Is that what he should pray in this moment? No. He says, that is why I came for what's going to happen in this hour. And in his troubled soul, He ends verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. Guys, I love the heart of Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus' concern when his soul is troubled, when he has this great circumstance of suffering that he's about to enter into, it is at hand. His greatest concern at the end of it, Father, would you just glorify your name? How many of you, when you suffer, that's your prayer? No, it's, God, get me out of this. I'd like to be a little bit more comfortable. No, God, would you just glorify your name? Make much of you in my troubled spirit. Should be our prayer too. But what I love is that we get a glimpse of the relationship, that we're caught up in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Look at what happens when Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Verse 28 Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Guys, the Father loves to glorify the Son. The Father loves to make much of His Son. He's already been doing it through all of Jesus' life, through all the things that He's been doing uh, in the world. What a joy it would be to know that the Father is being glorified through us. We find out that Jesus has been being glorifying the Father What a joy. But then there's this promise that the father makes to his son. I will glorify it again. Oh, man. Now, when we think about the glorification of God, when we understand what glory is, one of the best kind of... Before Christ, the highest place you could climb to would be Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, where Moses asks to see the glory of God. God says yes. 
brings him up to the top of the mountain. And Moses is put into the cleft of the rock as the Lord passes by. Moses sees the train of his robe and hears God proclaiming his glory to him. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We hear that this is our God, this is his glory, the beautiful perfections of his sovereign character. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger, but he won't clear the guilty. He forgives sin, but he doesn't clear the guilty. How can God do that? How can he both be merciful and just? How can he be both gracious and holy? You want to know what the answer is? The cross. It's the cross of Christ. It's the answer. Jesus didn't say here, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified, although that is true. It is true that he was coming to be glorified or crucified. That's what happens. He is, the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, the crucifixion is the glorification of the Son. Guys, the cross now is the highest place that you can climb to. To see the glory and the radiance of God himself. Where all of his attributes come miraculously together in a way that no one could script except the king of all kings. Guys, the supreme way Jesus displays the glory of God is at the cross. It's at the cross that Jesus pays the penalty of sin on behalf of sinners. So that God can show compassion and mercy without clearing the guilt At the cross, Jesus displays both the mercy and the justice of God, the grace and the holiness of God. It's the glory that Moses heard at Mount Sinai is the the radiance of the glory we see at Mount Calvary. So therefore, we see here that Jesus views his unattractive death as his glory because through it, he's exhibiting the majestic glory of his father. It's where all of God's attributes are on full display. So where the, where, where the world sees a cursed man on a tree, Christians see the radiance of the glory of their God. So this is one of the components of of the hour. It's the hour that the Son would be glorified. That's number one. We're going to work through the next three a little bit quicker. The second thing that we see in this hour is that it's the hour the world is judged. Can you read that with me? One, two, three. It's the hour the world is judged. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. Now is, now the hour is the judgment of the world. The word for judgment there in the Greek is krisis, krisis, which sounds a lot like our English word, crisis, crisis. In other words, crisis moments in our lives tend to have the ability to reveal or test our character, our resolve, our strength. It it tends to prove what we're made of. Jesus says here that this is a trial, a test, a verdict. It's now is the judgment of the world. Now is the crisis moment of the world, the critical, cataclysmic moment of the world. The world was going to be judged in this hour 
Now, when you hear the word judged, you think condemned, right? That's not the meaning of the word judged. A lot of us hear the phrase, judge not lest you be judged. That doesn't say don't judge. You should be very clearly evaluating the good and the bad in the world, testing things. But the problem is if you use a a measure for someone else that you don't use for yourself. That's what he's saying there. But here we see that this is the judgment of the world. In other words, this is the test. This is the trial. And all of it was going to hinge on the world's response to Jesus. It's going to hinge on the world's response to Jesus. Look at verse 32. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All the world has to have or deal with Jesus. Some of them don't have him, which is why in John 10, 16, whenever we heard about this good shepherd, he says, I have sheep of another pen. I must bring them in also. In other words, this is another thing of the agenda of Jesus that the Jews don't like. They're finding out that he has sheep in other pens that aren't Jewish, that are Gentile. He's going to bring them in. So even the Greeks here are welcome to come see Jesus, even though we don't have that recorded in the gospel. One of the things Jesus did in this hour was was level the playing field so that any person in the world, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their race is, no matter their gender, no matter their past, all of it was going to be a level playing field, and all of it just had to be dealt with Jesus. Every person has to deal with Jesus. And that's, that's kind of what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.14. He says, for Jesus is our peace who made both Jew and Gentile one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Guys, the reality that Je- this is the hour that the, the world is judged or the judgment of the world, because of this, because this is where the trial moment is, it's dealing, everyone dealing with Jesus This is how you and I even have faith in Christ. We were not barred from the gospel because of our Gentile heritage. Some of you might be Jewish, ethnic ethnic Jews here. Praise God for that. All of us can now be included in this faith because Jesus broke down the wall that divided us. So this is the hour. This hour here is the hour the world's going to be judged. In order to pass the trial, in order to get through this test, this crisis moment, it all hinges on what you do with Jesus. It hinges on him alone. You have to receive Jesus. You have to have Jesus. Guys, there's just a few more chapters and Jesus is going to say, no one gets to the Father except through me. No one gets to the Father except through me. A lot of people outside of our faith look at that and say, y'all are just being exclusive. Y'all aren't being tolerant of all faith. Okay, if your oncologist diagnoses you with stage four cancer and he tells you, she tells you, yeah, wow, this is, this is devastating. Here's the treatment plan. Here's what you have to do. You're gonna have to, we're going to have to radiation. You're going to have chemotherapy. You're going to have to change your diet. Are you going to look at your doctor and say, uh, that's a bit exclusive. Can you, can you broaden up the treatment plan a little bit to allow some other things in? You, no. He, he, uh, he's the oncologist. He's the doctor. 
to, to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you're being a bit exclusive, when he's saying, no, here's the condition, and I'm the only one who has the remedy. That's not exclusive. That's desperation. That's understanding. Jesus is drawing all people to himself. He's not drawing them to a government. He's not drawing them to a health plan. He's not drawing them to a law or a checklist of obligated works. He's drawing everyone to himself. The judgment of the world hinges on if a person receives Jesus, believes in his name. We saw that in John 1. So that's the second thing we see about this hour. Here's the third thing that we see about this hour. The hour, it's the hour the devil is overthrown. Can you read that with me? It's the hour the devil is overthrown. Amen? Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is the hour. This is the time. Now, what do you think the Jews thought when Jesus said the ruler of this world? I, I don't know what they thought, but here's my, my guess. The ruler of this world, that, well, that's Caesar. I mean, he, he rules over the whole known world. I go, I go east, I go west. He, there, Roman rule. My goodness. But that's not the tyrant Jesus was targeting. The ruler of this world is not Caesar. It was Satan. And here we go with another part of a Jesus' agenda that the Jews don't like. Guys, I'm, I'm going to quote some scriptures that are not easy to swallow. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2 says, About us, before we were in Christ... And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's another title for Satan. The ruler of the power of the air. The spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Or 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In the case of those who are perishing, the God of this age... The God, lowercase g, God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is the God of this age, the ruler of this world, at this critical junction in Jesus' story. And you can see just this incredible example of, of, of blindness that Satan can kind of cause to keep people from seeing things. Did you, did you see what the crowd did when they heard the voice of God say, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again? Now, some commentators think they just didn't hear it, right? I, I mean, it just didn't make sense. They said, oh, it was thunder. Like, how thick do you got to be? You hear this voice from, from heaven booming through the clouds. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Oh, thunder, huh? It's like, thunder doesn't talk! Which is so terrifying that somebody can be so blind or deaf. We'll find out next week that you can hear but not hear. You see, at the, at the beginning of this book, there's a critical moment in the history of mankind 
where we exalted ourselves above God's word. We tried to take our own uh, uh, stand. We tried to get our own way. And, and Satan was tempting all along to, 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 to bring that about. And at that moment, all of creation, when, when the moment they ate of the fruit, or better yet, the moment they believed they had, uh, uh, that, that God was wrong and that they, they needed something else other than God and what he had provided for them, at that moment, all of creation gets subjected to the curse, to the fall. And part of this curse, we can see in Genesis 3.15, one of the things that God says to the serpent I will put hostility between you and the woman. In other words, all of her, her and her offspring, right? I, uh, in between your offspring and her offspring. That word, singular, not plural in the Hebrew. One offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The cross is the moment Satan struck the heel of Jesus as Jesus crushed the head of the snake. Jesus is the snake crusher. And it's in the hour of Jesus' death that he crushes, that he overthrows Satan, that he casts him off the throne of authority in the world. This is what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Who is who? The The devil. Guys, Colossians 2 says that Jesus has disarmed him, rendered him powerless over those who are in Christ. And so because of Jesus' accomplishments, what Jesus has done in this hour, we have what we need as Christians to resist the schemes of the devil. All right, Ephesians 6 tells us that we can put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. James 4, 7 says simply that if we resist the devil, he has to flee. Why? Because Jesus has overthrown the devil in this hour. Then we get to this fourth quick one. This hour is the hour the sun sets. Can you read that? The hour the sun sets. Jesus' death has further implications than just simply terminating at the cross. Look at verse 35 and 36. Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Guys, of the I am statements, which one's most relevant? Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but the light wasn't going to be remaining. The light would be setting. When Jesus cried out those words on the cross, to Telestai, it is finished. These works have been accomplished. These works have been done. The hour is complete and the sun sets. Guys, in other words, it's, it wasn't going to get any easier for anybody to start actually following Jesus after his death. 
It wasn't going to get easier for people to follow the sun after it set. Like, try to, try to think about it this way. Uh, let's say you and I were outside, cloudless day, and I were to say, hey, do you believe in the sun? Like the S-U-N? You'd be like, uh, yeah. Why are you asking that? Well, prove it. Why do you believe in the sun? It's right there. Oh, okay. There was gonna be, it was very clear, very easy for anybody to be like, hey, do you believe in the Son, Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, he's right there. He exists, he's there. But when the, when the moment the sun sets, you think it's, it's a little harder to convince people that there's an actual sun, that they can't see, that they can't in, like, bask in the radiance of. In the death of Jesus, the light of day was setting. And so Jesus starts to build this sense of urgency, this sense of like deep need in light of this fact that the sun was going to be setting. The light wasn't going to be with them much longer. Look at verse 35. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. Think about this. In the day, in the normal scheme of a day, how does the day become dark? The sun sets, right? Is darkness this force that just invades the day? Is like, ah, I'm here. No. The sun goes down, and it's the absence of the sun that darkness comes in. So just a simple question for you. How do you keep out of the darkness? Stay in the light. Walk while you have the light. So how do you stay in the light if Jesus is the light? You follow him. Right? So that, that is um, how we're going to land all of this today. That is that's how we're going to make sense of everything about this hour. That's the application that Jesus himself gives us in this text. In light of this hour... In light of this hour where the sun's going to be glorified through crucifixion, where the, the world is going to be judged, where the devil is going to be overthrown, where the sun's going to be setting, what's the application? What do we do in response to all of this? Well, Jesus tells us what to do. Verse 36, believe in the light. Verse 26, follow the sun. Guys, I, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be a difference in too many people's mindsets that there's a difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. Those aren't two separate invitations. They're one and the same. Believing him means you are following him. Following him means you believe him. They're both the same terms, just different images. So Jesus is inviting us to believe in the light. He's in, in light of this hour, he's inviting us to, to follow him. And he tells us what our discipleship ought to look like. Look at verse 25 and 26. Sorry, let's start at verse 20. Um, yeah, 25. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is discipleship. This is what Jesus is inviting us to, to follow the Son. 
And this is what he describes it as. If you love your life here in this world, you'll lose your life. But if you live your life in such a way that it looks like hate for life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. Now, the love-hate thing is a Jewish idiom of preference, but it's a strong preference. And Jesus is saying here that discipleship to him is a narrow way that looks like self-denial, that looks like self-sacrifice, that looks to others like, man, that guy just doesn't seem to care for himself very much. Man, he doesn't, he doesn't put her, she doesn't put herself first. She puts others first. She must not like herself very much. No, that's not it. We just developed a distaste for anything in the world. In fact, one of the favorite verses of mine that Paul says, he says, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord. His life wasn't precious to him. His life wasn't about conserving his own life. That's discipleship. He also says, he talks about serving Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, in other words he, part of discipleship looks like your agenda is to serve Jesus. That's part of what it means to believe in him, to follow him. And guess what he just announced? Where, where is he going? Uh, uh, on what hill is he go- going to climb up with something on his back? Calvary. If anyone would serve me, he must follow me. In other words, he's saying, if you're going to serve me, you follow me to the cross. You die with me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you willing to follow Jesus to the cross and pick up your own? Guys, there's this trend in Christianity and trend on social media. You just see it everywhere that one of your top priorities you need to have in your life is to, you got to take care of yourself first. You got you to gotta, you gotta be good first. You got to take care of yourself first. Like, like, and they use that illustration of the oxygen on the airplane, right? You know one of the things they say when the oxygen mask fell down? You got to first put oxygen on yours, and then, and then you can take care of somebody else. So you just got to, like, it's, take care of yourself first. Now, there's this way that you can pr- prioritize your health spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, but not for your own gain. It's for the good of everyone else around you. It's for the good of those you love, but it's not because you've prioritized yourself and you're more important than anyone else around you because that is contrary to the gospel. That is not Jesus' way here. Jesus, he took the oxygen mask off because he's the only one who had it. He said, hey, anybody who comes to me, I'll give it to you. He loses his oxygen. He dies on the cross so that everybody else can have life. Look at what else he says discipleship to Jesus looks like. The invitation that he's saying. Verse 26. Where I am, there my servant also will be. Now, you have in your mind the image of of, of heaven, of him having mansions up there. He hasn't said that yet. That's not on anybody's mind when he hears this. Servants always stayed with their master. If anyone would serve me, he must follow me. Where I am, there all my people will be. 
If I'm in this house visiting and caring for this widow, oh man, my people will be there with me. If I'm on the streets taking care of those poor and needy, all my people will be with me. If I'm on uh, the mountaintop preaching, all my people are going to be there with me. That's what he's saying here. Where I am, there my servants also will be. It's not about heaven. It's about discipleship. It's about serving Jesus. Where Jesus is, there you are. Now, I don't know about you, but the way Jesus is describing discipleship here, is he asking for people who are just going to look for the bare minimum requirements? No. No. There's a, there's a complete sold-outness here. There's a, a total abandonment to uh, life in this world because you want life with Christ. And I just, I just I, I, I've got so many more notes. I don't think I, I, I think we just need to ask ourselves this. You don't have to raise your, your hand, but like in light of this hour and how Jesus has applied this hour, ways he's described what discipleship to him looks like, what belief in Jesus really looks like, you don't have to raise your hands. How many of you would say your faith in Jesus looks like what he's asking for? He's asking that anybody who would serve me, follow me. Anybody who's following me, serves me. He's saying that anyone who loses his, loves his life here will lose it. Anybody who loses his life here in this world and hates it will keep it for eternal life. How many of you say that your faith looks like that? That your relationship to Jesus looks like that? I got to tell you, there is a radicalness to this kind of discipleship, this kind of faith in Jesus that cultural Christianity extinguishes. Where Christianity in the culture is just simply part of a shared identity. You go to church on Sundays, you tune your radio stations to the Christian thing, and, and there you are, you're in. Discipleship to Jesus means he is the highest influence in your life. It means that he's the one who gets your days. And right now, I'm just thinking, and I think, I think you guys would, this is coming from my own conviction, and I'm just wondering if I'm not alone in this. I am being more influenced by my phone and social media or by my news channel than I am by Jesus' way. If you're, if you're, if, what, if, what if your day looked like this? What if every time that you went to turn on your TV or went to pick up your phone, it was actually your Bible? Oh, man, that looked different. When you wake up, it's not this. It's, okay, Jesus, what do you have for me today? Okay. When you're, at, when you're brushing your teeth, it's not your phone. It's your Bible. When you're at breakfast, it's not your phone, it's not the TV, it's not whatever news channel you tune into, it's God's word, it's Jesus, his way, his word, right? Like, my goodness, too many of our relationships to Jesus 
look more like we're a fan of Jesus than we are a follower of Jesus. In many ways, I'm in that boat too. Guys, this is, this is not a hellfire and brimstone sermon. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not threatening salvation on the line here. The gospel doesn't require a radical kind of faith. It produces a radical kind of faith. It is the overflow of your understanding all of Jesus' accomplishments in this hour, his glorification through his crucifixion, how he's judged the world and drawn all people to himself, how he's toppled the tyrants of Satan, how, he, how, how, how everyone has to deal with Jesus. The more you come into that good news of what he's accomplished, it produces the radical kind of faith. And so I think when Jesus says the hour is now at hand, this hour where all of these incredible things are accomplished by Jesus, his challenge to us is that we get real with him. That we follow him to the cross where it's our lives that we're willing to give to him as he has already willingly given his to us. Guys, he's not asking us to do anything that he's not already himself willing to do. He's given his life for you. So I just want to challenge you. Some of you need to wake up. Some of you have fallen asleep to the lullaby of, of the American dream of, of, of your 401k being settled and, and, and uh, your, your home looking like it should be featured on HGTV when there's so many more important things. When Jesus' urgency here is, follow me. So when Jesus says, this now is the hour that has come, now is the hour, the reason why he was born, the reason why he came, I would say this too is now your hour. Because here we find our purpose. It's to follow Jesus in his Now I, I, um, I don't know if I should say I apologize. I'm sorry if I didn't give you a warning that today was going to be a bit hard-hitting too. I shared you, with you last Sunday that here's a warning, it's going to be hard. I didn't give you that heads up today, so I apologize if this took you off guard. But, yeah, you're right. Our mission is to love God, love people, and make disciples. That is the purpose that we've agreed to as a church family, the highest commandments with the Great Commission. And I'm just wondering how many more people are going to join in and understanding, yeah, no, I believe that that is my highest calling. That is my highest purpose. It's to love my God, to love everyone that he's made, 
and to help them in their relationship with Jesus. To follow him as radically as he's asking for. And that my life would be an example. When Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Would you say that your life is worth imitating? Is it so radically sold out to following Jesus that you'd be willing to say to someone else who wants to get to know Jesus more, yeah, just come, come follow, here's my steps, because fo- I'm following Jesus, you just follow me, we'll get there. Imitate me, do what I do. I think when you think about that, you're looking at your days, you're looking at the times, what you do, what, how you spend your time, how you spend your time, what you, what, you, what you spend your money on, you're like, oh, whoa, I wouldn't want somebody to follow me there. I wouldn't want somebody to copy me doing that. And those are the areas where you can put them up on the cross and say, Jesus, this isn't your way. I want your way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think you know more than anyone, obviously, the dangers that the world can present to those who are looking to follow you with a radical kind of sold outness, a kind of followership, that, a kind of discipleship that looks strange, that looks crazy to the world. God, your word says that, that the cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. It's because it's where you displayed your fullness and your glory. And so if, if Jesus, you died for the glorification of the Son of Man, you died for the glory of your Father, may we die with you for the glory of your Father's name. I pray that we would die to ourselves that we would die to our addictions, to the pacifiers that we try to use to ease this life, to comfort ourselves that are just simply broken. These pacifiers don't actually offer any nutrients. Jesus, we know that you are the light of the world. You are the life of light. And God, we want to follow your son. We want to trust in your son. We want to walk with your son. We want to follow him to the cross, through the grave, and to life forevermore. And we want to be, we want to be living the kind of life, believing Jesus in the way that Jesus asked for, not the way that everyone else in the world tells us Christianity should look like. We want to look to Jesus the King and give Him our lives. And believe in him in the way that he's asked. And follow him in the way that he's asked us and invited us to follow him as servants of the king. God, for those who have heard today of the depth of this discipleship relationship, of what it means to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and they have not yet responded to the good news that Jesus has offered himself in our place to show off the glory of God and to pay the penalty of our sin. I pray that today would be their hour. 
their moment where they come to faith and they are radically following you. May we be a church family full of radical disciples for Jesus who don't prioritize themselves, who are healthy and good, but have the good of everyone else in mind, just as your son Jesus did. God, we love you. Would you, would you guard what is your word today? Would you allow whatever wasn't your word today to flee from our minds? May only your word stand in our minds and in our hearts. We love you. We give you all glory. Thank you for dying for us and for rising for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand. Uh, some of you, this may have hit hard. I'd love to pray with you. Uh, if some of this got really confusing for you and now you feel a heavier burden, uh, that's not the gospel. Um, so maybe I need to clarify some things because Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. I want to in invite you to tonight, though, because part of what it looks like when we have a life that's radically sold out for Jesus is that we're devoted to making much of him, and that's part of what tonight looks like. It's like we're just coming together into the upper room, and we're going to spend time with Jesus. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to give him all glory through our voices, through our song. So I want to challenge you. Come tonight. I believe it's at 630. It'll be down in the gym. Something very special. Please be there. But if you need prayer, if you need care, come meet me up here. I'd love to pray for you as well. Here's the benediction that I'd love to pray over you from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And all God's people said, amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week.